When does inspiration cross into copyright infringement? That line's getting blurrier. I'm Dave Dalton. You're listening to Jones Day Talks Intellectual Property. Welcome to Jones Day Talks Intellectual Property. If you follow pop culture or intellectual property law, you know that musicians Pharrell Williams and Robin Thicke have lost their appeal of a 2015 decision holding that their 2013 smash hit, Blurred Lines, infringed on Marvin Gaye's Got to Give It Up. Here are clips from both songs. First, Blurred Lines, the number one single of 2013. Now here's Marvin Gaye's Got to Give It Up. It spent a week at number one in 1977. Blurrier and blurrier. Here to talk about the Ninth Circuit decision are Jones Day intellectual property lawyers Meredith Wilkes. She's from our Cleveland office. Ariane Garansi hails from our Washington, D.C. office. And also here is Anna Raymer from Jones Day in Houston. Thank you all for coming. Meredith, in preparing for this, you and I talked about how the decision turned largely on a number of nuanced procedural issues that, in effect, avoided the bigger questions of where the line is drawn. Can you talk about what those procedural issues were? Absolutely, Dave. And I guess this gets down to a more fundamental question of the different roles of the trial court versus an appellate court. The trial court's job is to engage in the fact-finding and make determinations as to liability or lack of liability. Usually the job of an appellate court is to focus on issues of law as opposed to determinations of fact. Now, sometimes the appellate courts will dig into issues of fact, but for the most part, they tend to be concerned with issues of law. And that's why I think we see a lot of what happened in this decision And I I can think of nothing more clear than the court's decision and the language of the conclusion where the court goes to great lengths to say that it has decided the case on narrow grounds and that the conclusions turn, quote, on the procedural posture of the case, which in effect required the court to review the issues, the factual issues that the party wanted to get in front of the court under a very deferential standard of review, meaning that unless a really, really, really bad mistake was made at the trial level, they are not going to disturb the trial court's findings on the factual issues and on the legal issues that are bound up in those factual issues. Let's go to Ariana. In the Jones Day commentary that followed this decision, and listeners can find that on our publications page at jonesday.com, you wrote that the court seemed to adhere to the inverse ratio rule. Can you explain what the inverse ratio rule is? Well, the gays had to show that Williams and Thicke had access to the gays' work and that the two works got to give it up and blurred lines were substantially similar. In the Ninth Circuit, access and substantial similarity are, quote, inextricably linked, meaning that the greater the showing of access, the lesser the showing of substantial similarity is required. Here, um, Williams and Thicke admitted a high degree of access to Marvin Gaye's Got to Give It Up at trial. So the court found that the Gaye's burden of proof of substantial similarity was subsequently lowered. 
Okay, so they admitted to having heard Marvin Gaye's recording a lot, and that hurt their case in terms of why they probably hadn't infringed on the copyright. Is that correct? Exactly. They could have, I mean, I, I know they're under oath and everything, but who's, who's to determine what a high degree of access is? Is that one of these lines we're talking about? If I've heard it 20 times, is that different than hearing it 200? Where does that fall? It's really just a finding of fact with the jury. Good enough. Let's go over to Anna Raymer for a second. And the inverse ratio rule that we were just talking about resulted here in a lesser showing of a substantial similarity required by the Gay family. What are the takeaways from that? First, the majority held that Marvin Gaye's Got to Give It Up was entitled to broad copyright protection as a musical composition. So the substantial similarity standard was applied rather than the virtual identity standard that would be applicable to works with a thin copyright protection. So then substantial similarity is measured by objective and subjective tests. The subjective test, um, also known as the extrinsic test, is met if the copyright owner can demonstrate through expert testimony that protected elements of the work are substantially similar. And because of the lower required showing of substantial similarity here, a takeaway from the case is that the importance of experts who render opinions on similarity at trial. So such experts must be understandable, reliable, and trustworthy to a jury because the ultimate decision on infringement may turn on their testimony. What kind of experts were brought in? Here you have musical experts who can discuss the various different aspects of the case that are considered the protected elements of the works at issue mm -hmm. and compare them on uh, various different grounds uh, to be able to explain to the jury who may have no background in music why these works share substantial similarities. You know, Anna brings up an excellent point about the importance of expert testimony in cases like these, and particularly in this case. The jury in this case never heard the song Got to Give It Up. They heard a different recording of the song. And so for a case where you were supposed to be determining whether or not two songs sounded alike, they never heard the actual recording of Marvin Gaye's Got to Give It Up. And by the way, Meredith, I think I'm probably speaking for a lot of people hearing this right now. I didn't know that until you told me this morning. I just assumed that the jury would have heard that recording. So I thought that was fascinating, really. It is really an interesting point. And, you know, a lot of folks will not have the benefit of being able to review the entirety of the trial transcript and know everything that happened at trial, including the folks during this discussion today. But the issue in the case turns on whether or not the written sheet music was infringed, not the sound recording, which was why the jury was not permitted to hear the sound recording of Got to Give It Up. The sheet music is different than what was recorded by Marvin Gaye. Meredith, while we have you, talk about the role of effective appellate counsel. I think that was probably obviously key here. I can't overstate or understate. I'm not really sure what the right word is here. The critical importance of having appellate counsel with you at all stages of the trial. Nobody wants to be the trial lawyer who has and the appeals court say, oh, you missed something. And nobody wants to be the trial lawyer having to look back and say, did I cover all my bases the right way? The court notes in its opinion in a footnote that the thick parties should have made certain motions at trial to preserve the record appropriately. We don't know if they did or didn't make those motions, right? Because we don't have the trial transcript in front of us. So we don't know if they orally made those motions. But we know that the, the finding of the appellate court is that they failed to make certain motions 
that would essentially allow the appellate court to dig a little bit more deeply into the facts of the case. And the court right. here found that the rights to do that had been waived. So it's a it's a real cautionary tale and why, you know, we're, we're lucky here at Jones Day that, that we involve our appellate folks in these types of cases for that reason. Is that typical? The appellate court might say, hey, Vic and Williams, you should have done this as an asterisk or footnote. Is that usual? Oof, I don't <laughs> I don't know if it's usual or unusual. I'll tell you as a trial lawyer, nobody wants to be second-guessed like that. <laughs> nobody wants somebody looking over sure. the shoulder that way. Hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Right, but absolutely. Here, um, as a matter of trial procedure, there are certain things that the trial lawyers do. And, and if you don't think that there's enough evidence to support the case on the other side, you jump up a bunch of different times at trial and make these Rule 50 motions that the court's talking about in this footnote of their opinion. Uh, a Rule 50 motion? That's correct. A Rule 50 motion that says they don't have enough evidence to support their claims and no jury could find otherwise. Interesting. Let's talk about some of the specific wording in the decision. Let's go to Ariana. This was an 84-page decision with a very bristling, aggressive dissent. The dissenting judge wrote that the gays had been allowed to copyright a musical style which accomplished something no one has ever done before. But the majority wrote that the decision had been made on narrow grounds. Ariana, what's your take on that? Well, here the majority, as you know, affirmed the copyright of infringement holding based on deferential standards of review. It found the district court's order denying summary judgment after a full trial on the merits was not reviewable. The majority really did decide this case on narrow procedural grounds and largely appellate deference. They didn't really focus on the substantive copyright law. And I believe many lawyers were hoping that this decision would help clear up the line between use of inspiration and copyright infringement. Instead, it made the lines a little more blurry and leaves mm -hmm. more questions unanswered. We certainly don't need to be making anyone at the Ninth Circuit angry with us, but did they dodge those issues you were talking about in terms of where those lines were? It would have been a nice way to clean this indecision up, I think. It really would have, but the court successfully, yes, avoided addressing the substantive copyright law issues that would have addressed the line between inspiration and copyright infringement. But they did expressly state that their decision did not allow copyright to a musical style. Even so, I think that only time will tell how this decision will affect future copyright infringement suits. But in the meantime, artists will likely be more cautious in creating new works and using an iconic style or groove. Well, and again, the review on appeal plays a critical role here. Had the review been different on appeal, the court may have been able to get into some of the more sort of substantive or heady copyright specific issues, but the standard on appeal prevented them from getting there. But clearly, the music industry and a lot of other industries need as much clarity as they can get on an issue like this to stay out of trouble and do the right things. What needs to happen for some court somewhere to say, here's infringement, this or here is not infringement? What's it going to take? <laughs> That's an excellent question. You know, it's interesting when the verdict first came down, and this was a couple of years ago, I think several hundred artists came out against it mm -hmm. and said this jury verdict should have gone the other way. And so I think it's, you know, sort of a, a classic example of hard cases make bad law. 
Copyright law in particular is difficult to predict because of the vast area of subject matter that underlies it. But that kind of leads to another question, though. And let's go to Anna Raymer for this. Is an unbanked decision possibly in the works? And if so, what effects might that have? An unbanked consideration is infrequent. And what that means is that the case would be reheard by a larger panel in the Ninth Circuit, which would be 11 judges. It is possible, though, given that you had such a lengthy dissent in this case, and there was obvious disagreement between the judges as to whether there was Supreme Court precedent that barred their review of the denial of the summary judgment after a full trial on the merits. And the case also involves issues of importance to copyright owners and artists, as shown by the immense publicity and commentary that's been done on this case. Of course, the effects of such a decision would depend on whether the en banc panel agreed with the majority that it was procedurally limited on reviewing the case. When might we know if that will happen? Could we know in days or weeks or maybe months if there will be another decision? We should know in the next few weeks whether the parties are going to file such a motion seeking a rehearing en banc from the Ninth Circuit. Okay, good enough. Hey, this has been great. Let's wrap this up with one more question to all three of you. What are the biggest lessons a Jones Day client with copyright concerns can take away from this decision? Let's go to Meredith. Obviously, securing competent counsel is critical in a case like this. But, you know, the bigger issue, I think, and it's one that IP trial lawyers, irrespective of discipline, face, and it's this. IP cases, by their nature, are tough for judges and they're tough for juries. They just are. And so it becomes very critical early in your case to get your themes together and figure out what your story is going to be and tell it effectively. Tell it effectively with your witnesses. Tell it effectively with your experts. We saw some commentary that would suggest that maybe some of the deposition testimony of some of the witnesses in this case didn't go over so well in front of the jury. And so, you know, the takeaway really is getting your story in line and telling the right story to the jury with the right storytellers, I think is a critical takeaway here. I think that's especially true with intellectual property law. Ariana, what about you? What do you think about all this? Where do we go? What do we learn? I think clients should really take away that expert testimony on substantial similarity and damages could be critical in a copyright infringement case in the Ninth Circuit due to the deferential standards of review. The dissent even addressed that the majority gave an uncritical deference to the music experts. Great insight. Terrific. Let's wrap it up. Anna Raymer, what do you take away from this? And building on what's just been said, uh, the majority here characterizes this decision as, and I'm quoting them, a cautionary tale for future trial counsel wishing to maximize their odds of success. So based on this advice from the court and high-stakes litigation, it's really important to not only have effective trial counsel, but for trial counsel to be consulting with appellate counsel at various stages to ensure that critical issues are being preserved for appeal. Good enough. Hey, panel, this has been very informative. Uh, Meredith, Ariana, Anna, thank you so much for being here. Uh, we're going to watch and see what happens next. It's a fascinating area of law and something that's kind of crept into the mainstream. A lot of interest out there in this case. So thank you so much. Your commentary is wonderful. This podcast today was as well. Thanks for listening to Jones Day Talks Intellectual Property. I'm Dave Dalton. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to Jones Day Talks. Comments heard on Jones Day Talks should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. 
The opinions expressed on Jones Day Talks are those of lawyers appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information, please visit jonesday.com.